Okay, let's turn to Romans again, please. Romans chapter 3, to be exact. Part 2, really, tonight, of Where is Boasting? So the message will be entitled, again, Where is Boasting? So it will go in tandem with last night's teaching. A lot of things were reiterated last night. Also, I want you to be aware, I, I said I wasn't going to include notes on the website. It wasn't my original plan, but I've been writing a lot. And so we have message number 17, which is sort of a summary. I intend to do summaries every 20 messages or so. Instead, I included 17's notes, and we have those in print, and they'll also be on the website. And I, I really I did it to help you in your comprehension and clarification of what we're teaching so far, what I'm after in Better Call Paul, Paul's strategy in Romans. So we'll be continuing to do that. Now, I'll be putting notes up on the website, but they're going to be, A, fragmentary. They will not be, they'll be sort of like thoughts that are scattergun thoughts, but I think they'll still help you. They will be highly unedited. So for the grammatically astute among you, please don't be too critical. They're sort of everyday language type notes. And sometimes they will not be anywhere near a transcript of the message, but they're, they're, I think they're going to be helpful notes. So Romans 3, and let's have a word of prayer. Father, on the eve of a historical event in our nation, on the inauguration tomorrow of the 45th president of the United States, we, as those who participate in the faithfulness of Messiah, pray that you will allow for what has historically always been a peaceful transfer of power. And as we stand on the eve of this administration, and as we have prayed for presidents in previous administrations, as is our duty, according to 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. We ask that you will heal something in our land that is entirely destructive, not the policies of the left or the right, but an irrational hostility that has caused fragmentation and perhaps one of the deepest polarizations in our nation's history. Only this is our enemy, our own inner polarizing hostilities and antipathy. So we pray that only you can do this, and so we ask you to speak peace into this nation. We also ask the same thing for the body of Christ, for those believers that are aware that you have wrought salvation in your Son for all, for those of us that are aware of it, who are part of that proleptic community, we pray that you will also speak peace into the church, the body of Christ, so that even when we face challenging doctrines and new perspectives by your Holy Spirit, that it will be ultimately for the unity and maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, that is only maintained in the Spirit and by the Spirit. We pray these things tonight, Father, and we will continue to pray in this way, in accordance with our Lord's words, that they may be one. And we thank you for this opportunity in his name. Open the eyes of our understanding. We ask now in Christ's name, amen. This is part two of, again, where is boasting? Romans 3.27 is where we'll start. The teacher is speaking in 27. And he says, where is boasting then? Paul answers, shut out, excluded. So as we said last night, there used to be a graffito, which is, believe it or not, the singular form of graffiti. So a graffito is an example of a graffiti. When I was first became saved, this thing used to go around where it said, Jesus is nowhere. But then there would be a little bit of space created between here, and there would be Jesus is now here. And of course, it's a matter of perspective. Jesus is now here. He walks among the lampstands. He is here. He is already here before his physical and glorious appearance to all humankind. So I asked the question last night, where is boasting when it comes to 
human pride in acquiring salvation. It's excluded, but there is a place for boasting, as we're going to learn. So, teacher, where is boasting then? Paul says, shut out. Teacher asks, but what kind, by what kind of law? Now, again, it's unfortunate that the translations don't really get the idea here. They translate it nomos as law, which can be kind of a general thing. But he's talking here about Torah. This other teacher believes in a justification or a deliverance or really a salvation that people appropriate through the works of the law. And that's the one battlefront we're on is seeing the distinction between Paul and this teacher. It is not a distinction between law and faith. It's a distinction between law observance and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul, the point that Paul is making. The second battlefront we're on is with the interpretation of Romans rather than seeing it as a contradictory dialectic in which two opposite messages by two opposing teachers is exposed. The translation or the interpretation Romans, really ever since Augustine and the original Western break from the Eastern Church and then on through the Reformation and beyond, even to our present times, the interpretation of Romans is kind of a hybrid of these two Gospels. And so you get not justification by the works of the law. Oh, we would never say that. But it's justification by personal faith, by the individual, and then obviously retribution or justice on those who do not believe. But we're finding out through untangling or disentangling these two opposing messages that Paul's message is not a contrast between works and faith, but between works, a Torah of works, or a teaching of works, and a teaching of faithfulness. The gospel is a Torah of Messiah's faithfulness. And this puts the Old Testament, as we call it, in its proper perspective, in its proper function. The proper function of the Torah which is, it means two things. It doesn't just mean a law. It also means a teaching. And Paul then answers this teacher's question by saying, not at all. Boasting isn't excluded by a Torah of works. Paul says, no, not at all, but by a Torah of faithfulness. That is Messiah's faithfulness. Last night I took the time to show that the word ekpistios, the phrase ekpistios, which I'll give in the English transliteration, ekpistios means out from or from the source of, from the origin of, or from the cause of, or for the reason of pistios. Pistios there means faithfulness. It means the faithfulness of a single individual person who is Jesus Christ. Because as Romans one seventeen goes on to say, the Saving act of God in Christ is being apocalypto, disclosed, revealed, manifested. And it says, for therein the righteousness of God is being manifested, which again is the saving act of God in Christ, from faithfulness to faithfulness. Even as it is written, my righteous one, or the righteous one, and that's Jesus Christ, shall live by his faithfulness, meaning he will be resurrected, as the reward of his fidelity. Now, the long run of this, if I'm going to hit Apollo the far striker, if I were to shoot the arrow way out, what this is saying is that Jesus Christ, his faithfulness, which led to the death of the cross, it was an extent of obedience to the death of the cross, whereby God also exalted him or raised him from the dead as an answer to his faithfulness. When Christ was raised from the dead, so was all of creation, and so was all of humankind. And so, therefore, we may not know this, but all of humankind and all of the universe is in Christ. Now, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses. That's the long arrow. That's when David shoots the arrow 
and or when Jonathan rather shoots the arrow as a message to David. I'm showing you the long end of this. But I want to come up to that conclusion by using LBD, lower blade data, engaging the text. That's where the arena is. That's where the battle is fought. That's where the citadels are taken of the enemy. So again, teacher says this, and I'm going to have this whole thing with the help of Douglas Campbell in his book, The Deliverance of God. I'm going to have this whole thing sort of punctuated for you so you know who's talking and when from Romans, especially 118 to 320. That's where the the citadel is taken. That's where Paul destroys the fortress that's exalted itself against the knowledge of God. That's when he finally takes down this other gospel. That's when he is successful. The teacher says, where is boasting then? That's our message tonight. Where is boasting? Paul says, shut out, utterly excluded. Teacher, by what kind of Torah? By a Torah of works? Paul says, no, not at all, but by a Torah of faithfulness. Now, I would say in a bracket here, that means Messiah's faithfulness. Romans 1.17 is the determining use of this term. It's used 12 times with its synonyms throughout Romans. And so at the, under the law of first mention in Romans, the first time it's used, it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So whenever you see this word ekpistios, which will appear about 10 more times in Romans or 11, you will, it has to be determined by 117 that we're talking about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So when it's spoken of here in Romans 3.27, faithfulness, he's talking about the faithfulness of Jesus, who is the righteous one. And again, we've established that he is the righteous one of Romans 117, because the law and the prophets, including the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 2 and verse 4, speaking of Jesus Christ. They're not speaking of a generic anthropos, a generic person, a man or a woman who believes and therefore is told to live by faithfulness. We're talking about Jesus Christ, to whom God rewarded life through resurrection as a result of his faithfulness. So we could say that Jesus Christ's faithfulness was vicariously demonstrated for us all. And that's why the scripture says, in Christ, all will be made alive. In Christ, all will be made alive. This is going to become more and more clear as we unchain the true gospel. The faithfulness of Christ shuts out and excludes boasting. Another way to put this question is, where's the condition? If, if you hold to, as most Christians do, and as I did at one time, Hold to a condition that God puts before man for salvation. If it's a conditional, contractual agreement, then where is the condition? Where do you find it in Romans where Paul says you're justified by faith? Now, people will answer in Romans 4, Abraham is the paradigm of faith because he believed God and God credited him, credited his faith as righteousness. So it sound, Paul really gets into enemy territory here because it sounds like he's agreeing with Abraham being the paradigm or the prime example of this idea of our faith leads to justification from God, a forensic justification. But that's a thin and superficial reading. It's not wrong in the sense that people read it that way, but we've got to go, this is a reflection phase. Is it really so that Abraham is a paradigm of justification by individual's faith? And the answer is emphatically no. As we're going to see it unfold, it is, there's a thick reading in which Abraham is simply really more of an analogy of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to his father. And Abraham is a picture of some of the the saints that by faith in Hebrews 11, they operated in a precocious participation with Messiah's faithfulness. And this, we now, 
participate in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask the question, where is the condition? Is it nowhere or is it now here? Is it now here, this condition? Is it now faith? Have we, according to the theory that's been alive and well since the Reformation very strongly in the church, are we justified, that is, given a forensic righteousness, which is really a fiction because we don't, we're not really righteous, are we given a forensic righteousness by a God of retribution to protect us from future wrath? Or is there no condition whatsoever placed upon man and it's an unconditional covenant of God toward mankind? I'm going to explain that a little more. Again, this is going to take a long time to really hammer home. So there's going to be repetition. There's going to be reflection. There's going to be a lot of things going on here. So Paul then gets into the position where he can speak his mind clearly. In verse 28, he says, for my fixed position. Here we see him positioned against an opponent. We see him positioned toe-to-toe with the opponent. He's about ready to deliver some knockout punches. Well, he already has, but he's got a few more left. For my fixed position, this highlights the dialectic of contradictories, is that a person is justified. I put that in quotes because we have to now see this word justification as in accordance with the righteousness of God. Dikaiosune has to be like dikaio. Dikaio means justified. Dikaiosune means righteousness. But we know now that the righteousness of God is the righteous saving act of God unconditionally toward his people. That's what's being revealed in the gospel. That's why Paul's not ashamed of it because it's not a Torah of works. It's not even a Torah of faith on the part of man. It's a Torah or a teaching of the faithfulness of Messiah by which we now live. We live by the faithfulness of Messiah. We now are in participation with him. This doctrine, once you grasp it, and you'll only grasp it by the Spirit, not by my persuasion. Once you grasp it, it's transformative. Transformative of your attitude, of your disposition, of, and it allows you to put on compassion and humility, modesty, love, and all the rest of Colossians 3.14's list of things, 3.12 to 14. My fixed position, he says, is that a person is justified, but let's change that definition of justified to delivered from sin and death into Christ and life. Delivered from sin and death. Sin and death are powers. They are powerful authoritative kind of influences over people, over all people in Adam. And so really justified because it's dikaio, it's related to dikaiosune. So if God's righteousness is his right saving act, then justification should be deliverance or liberation or rescue. And so I translate it this way. My fixed position, Paul says, is that a person is delivered from sin and death into Christ and life. I can justify this translation with Romans 5.18. By the disobedience of one, the many were considered or condemned as sinners. And by the obedience of one, that's the faithfulness of Obedience and faithfulness are synonyms. By the obedience of one, all will be given justifying life or a justification that consists not of a forensic imputation, but of life itself. It becomes participation with Messiah and with his life. John 14, 19, Jesus in the upper room discourse put it very simply. He said, because I live, you live also. Because I live, you will live also. If you understand what he's saying, he was saying that to the whole of the human race, not just to 11 men that still were with him in the upper room. For my fixed position is that a person is delivered from sin and death into Christ in life through a faithfulness. Again, not through faith, which is yours, 
That's almost cruel. If you can't make it according to the law, this is what the Reformation onward says, God puts the law to you. You get into a terrible anxiety when you figure out you can't fulfill the law, which is kind of embarrassing stance to have because the pagans weren't given the law or the Torah. And so we find that we can't do it. So we throw up our hands and say, we're in despair. Oh, what are we going to do? What is? And then God says, don't worry, I'll lower the bar. And he lowers the bar and he says, all you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe that a certain thing happened in A.D. 30. And all you've got to do is believe that, which is harder to do than fulfill the law. How can I believe the facts about something that I didn't see? That there is all of a sudden, out of all the people that came to this world, came into this world and lived and died, one lived, died, and was resurrected into incorruptibility, immortality, and was resurrected and ascended and seated at the right hand of God. I believe that, but it's only because God granted me the gift of faith, as He did you. So the theory that comes from the Reformation onwards and is really pretty rampant. And this does not mean that we are divided from our brothers and sisters who believe this. Not at all. The unity that we have isn't in the sharing of the same doctrinal beliefs, even about the gospel. The unity that we have is by the spirit who, per, who brings us into Christ. We are in Christ. That's the unity. And so we should never see this as a disunifying doctrine. So Paul says again, this is, I want to get this square here for my fixed position is that a person that's any person is delivered from sin and death into Christ in life through a faithfulness apart from the works of the law. That's the faithfulness of Messiah. Then he says this in verse 29, Paul carries on. He's asking a question and the question is answered. It's not that Paul is asking a question and answering it himself. He's asking a question, and the teacher answers it. Paul anticipates the answer from a contradictory and opposing teacher. So he says, is God the God only of the Jews? Is he not also of the Gentiles? The teacher then says, and I think he's conceding a little bit here through gritted teeth. Teacher says, yes, of the Gentiles also. You see, he can't deny passages like Deuteronomy 32, 43 and a catena or a cascade of passages that Paul's going to quote in Romans 15, 8 through 13, 8 through 12, especially that rejoice you Gentiles with my people that God is going to be the God of both Jews and Gentiles. So he has to concede this point to Paul. So he says... Yes, of the Gentiles also. And then Paul says, because, and I love what the complete Jewish Bible says. It says, because as you will admit, this confirms that an interlocutor is being addressed, not the Romans themselves. He says, because as you will admit, God is one, quote, God is one. He admits this because this teacher is a particular pious Jew. He's a moralizing teacher. He's a Christian, probably. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't believe that he kind of puts Jesus Christ on the sidelines over here. Thank God we have a Messiah over here, but we still have to obey the law. We have to be circumcised. We have to have a comprehensive following of Torah to be saved. And there might be a little bit of enablement now from knowing that he's our Messiah. But it's, it's sidelined. It's kind of like a lot of Christendom today. You sideline Messiah. And marginalize the cross. And marginalize his resurrection. Marginalize his ascension. His enthronement. And then put the spirit on the sidelines. As if God, we can, in, we can be incentivized from reading the word of God to do the right thing. But it's only by my spirit, says the Lord. So again, he says, because, as you will admit, God is one. This is the Shema. This has to be agreed upon by this Jewish teacher because in Deuteronomy 6, 4, listen up, O Israel, the central message to Israel from Moses in Torah is listen up, Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, 
And with all of your soul's might and all of your belongings, some people say, it means, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we know that's fulfilled by the Holy Spirit in us who pours out the love of God in our hearts, but that's coming up. God is one who delivers the circumcision, ekpistios, by the circumcision believing. Circumcision is just another code word for the Jews. And uncircumcision, akrobustia. It's almost like a slap in the face, the uncircumcision, like Paul, or like David called Goliath, you uncircumcised so-and-so. So he says, God is one, and Paul goes on to say, who delivers the circumcision from the source of faithfulness, ekpistios. That's Messiah's faithfulness, not the faith of a circumcised person. And the uncircumcision through the same faithfulness, dia tes pistios. That's the same faithfulness, which is what? The faithfulness of the Messiah. Is Paul kind of pressing here toward a Messiah who has a universally saving significance and toward a crucified Savior whose death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement has a universal impact, or what? So look at verse 30. It's kind of the key verse in my mind tonight. Because, as you, teacher, will admit, God is one who delivers the circumcision from the source of faithfulness. That's Christ Messiah's faithfulness. Ek pistios goes back to Romans 1.17. It's the faithfulness of the righteous one who died for all the unrighteous ones. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. The righteous one, as Acts 7.52 calls the Messiah. So this guy shouldn't have quoted in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 10.17, all the way back in Romans 2.11, where he says, God shows no favoritism. And he applies that to God will throw you in hell, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. He shows no favoritism. And Paul says, Paul turns that around and says, it seems to be true that God shows no favoritism. He saves Jews through the faithfulness of Messiah, and he saves the pagans through the faithfulness, the same faithfulness of the Messiah. Yeah, God is no respecter of persons. He'll save anybody. I could say he even saved me. One thing that takes the hostility out of your soul is when you look at all human beings as not only savable, but reconciled to God already in the saving act of God in Christ. They just don't know it yet. So again, what is this? Diates pistios, which is the same as ek pistios, the same faithfulness, which is Messiah's faithfulness to the point of death, followed by the consequences of burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement. And this is where revelation comes in. Paul and Revelation aren't antagonistic to each other, as some would suggest. Paul and John are saying the same thing. The lamb is enthroned in heaven. The lamb that was slaughtered is raised, ascended, and enthroned over the universe. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of Christ, our God and of our Christ, his Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen. So the charge against Paul is that he is abolishing Torah. All of the city of Jerusalem came down upon Paul when he was preaching one day in Acts 21 and tried to tear him to pieces. They were saying, he's not worthy to draw breath again because he has destroyed the Torah of Moses. He is demolishing the whole basis and foundation of our existence. And if it weren't for Colonel Claudius Lysias and his troops fully armed and double-timing it to Paul's rescue, he would have been a dead man. Same thing happened in Ephesus when he was almost torn apart by, he called them beasts, but they were just people in the frenzy of an Adamic ontology. God's wrath is not directed toward people. No people are the recipients of God's wrath. His wrath is directed toward the Adamic ontology. I'll explain that more in the future. So Paul says, do we then abolish Torah through the faithfulness of Messiah? Perish the thought. 
Now, a pious person will say, God forbid, although it never says that. Meganoita, they translate it. Even the King James says, God forbid. Other translations say, heaven forbid. There's a couple places where this Jewish teacher actually kind of goes, like that emoji that's screaming in fear and the hands are up like this. And I like to use that one even when people are happy. You know, I just uh, send that one to them. But he says, oh, God forbid. You can see the piety oozing out of this text here from this teacher, the pseudo-piety coming from him when Paul asks certain questions. But Paul says, do we then abolish Torah? That's Paul and his missionary team. Do we abolish Torah through the faithfulness of Messiah? Meganoito means perish the thought or hell no in idiomatic terms. On the contrary, he says, we affirm Torah by proclaiming the faithfulness of Messiah. We are proclaiming what the law, the Torah, which means in this sense, all the Old Testament scriptures are proclaiming. They are proclaiming the coming of a Messiah, the faithfulness of a Messiah, and in his coming, the restoration of all things. So by proclaiming the faithfulness of Messiah, we are not destroying the function of Torah. We're affirming the the function of Torah as being primarily an attestation of Christ. Remember in Luke 24, 44, the risen Jesus gives his own exposition of the scriptures, beginning with Moses and the prophets, the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, the writings, the Ketubim, as they're called, the Psalms. And upon his completion of this exposition, he said, these testify of me. Their function is attestation. So Paul says, how can you say that us saying that the faithfulness of God exemplified in the faithfulness of Messiah, by which he saves both the pagans and the Jews, it violates Torah. It doesn't violate it. It totally upholds it. It affirms it. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, don't you think or stop thinking that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill, to fill them full. Because the essence of the Torah is you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, Israel. And Jesus became the Israel that did that in his obedience to the Father to the extent of death. And he loved his neighbor as himself because he gave himself for me. I was his neighbor. You were his neighbor. The whole of the human race was his neighbor. We affirm Torah. There was a heretic that came along in the middle of the second century. His name was Marcion, not Martian. Well, they might as well have been. M-A-R-C-I-O-N, Marcion. And he is the one that started this whole thing of there's a difference between the God of the Old Testament. He's vengeful, he's wrathful, he's angry. He's not really the God that we worship. The New Testament is all about the compassionate, the loving, the kind, the self-sacrificing Jesus. It's a different, he's the true God. So let's cut out the whole Old Testament. He's saying the opposite of what Paul said. We affirm the Old Testament. The judgment on Pharaoh and his armies was a historical analogy to God's wrath and the Adamic ontology, for example. So the phrase ekpistios in Romans 1.17, used twice, is essentially equivalent to dia pistios, which is used in Romans 3.22 and 3.30. In 3.30, they're both used, ek pistios and dia pistios. The circumcision will be li- delivered through the faithfulness of the righteous one, which means his death on the cross, his resurrection. It's the Christ event. They're saved by the saving act of God in Christ, enacted through Christ's faithfulness. And so are the uncircumcision, the acrobustia, the uncircumcised, the pagans, the heathen, the goyim. There's all kinds of words people use in their anti-Semitic and evil function when they talk about Jews and anti-Jewish sentiment. But the Jews also had their own anti-Gentile sentiment, calling the Gentiles dogs, goyim, heathen, like Christian fundamentalists do, the heathen, pagans. And I like the word pagans, as does D.A. Campbell, because it was already a slanderous thing that Paul's ministry was apostle to the Gentiles. And so we should put all the negative connotations there to make his gospel slanderous to people, a shock to people. The apostle of Jesus Christ announcing 
salvation to pagan peoples. And you get the same thing in Romans 1.24 and following. If Let me just say this, just to throw in. Why not throw in a shocker? It's Thursday night. If you're going to be a Christian gay basher and bash people that are homosexuals, if you're going to be, you cannot use Romans 1 for your word of God rationale against them. Because that's not Paul teaching that. Just thought I'd say that. If you're going to choose, if you're going to choose that you have a right to, cert, to lay a judgment on a certain portion of the population today, then be very careful about it. Because you may be finding out that it, the, the rationale for what they call gay bashing can't come from Romans 1. That's the implication. We never thought you'd say that. I'm not saying that I'm applauding a certain sexual orientation. I'm just saying, if you're going to be one of those moralizing, self-righteous, judgmental fundamentalists that are going to make a whole thing to dissuade any responsibility against yourself to be faithful and to share the faithfulness of Messiah by showing how bad a lot of other people are, don't use Romans 1 in God's handing over people to certain cravings and say that the word of God in Romans is my rationale for judging you. That's out of the picture now. Or who are you who judges another? I'm thankful to God that he does not display on the screen of the universe like the Jack Trick track, This Is Your Life, used to show. And I'm not against Jack Chick tracts, but that one was the first one I got. This Is Your Life. That at the judgment, the final judgment, everything you ever did and thought evil is up on a screen for the whole universe to see. I'm grateful that that's not going to be the case. Although right now society is like that. You can't even turn. Don't turn over here and think you're telling someone a secret because there's a camera angle on you from that angle. In other words, privacy's dead. Privacy's gone. So live before God. And if you're going to be indicted for anything, let it be for your faithfulness to Jesus Christ. On the other hand, it would be interesting if that happened, because everybody would be embarrassed and ashamed except Jesus Christ, because you would find that a lot of people that bashed certain parts of the population fantasized about the very things that they bash those people for, if not practiced them. Just an interesting thought. I thought I'd throw it out on Inauguration Eve, because there's a bigger inauguration that's afoot right now. It's the inauguration of the age of Messiah. It's already here. It's now, but it's not yet consummated. It's been inaugurated. I celebrate that inauguration every single day. Now, the Romans 3.27 to 31 passage is a lead-in. It's a beautiful segue to Romans 4, which is a treasury of gracious insights and a telling illustration of just how the law and the prophets is fulfilled, just how Torah is upheld by the faithfulness of God and of Christ in the story of Abraham. But first, let's locate boasting. Just where is it? Is there a place for it? Is it nowhere or is it now here? Paul says boasting can't be, it's nowhere when it comes to man boasting about how he appropriated salvation. But there is a boasting that is now here, and here it is. Let's jump Romans 4 for now. To Romans 5, 5, 5 1 says, being liberated, justified there should be liberated, rescued, delivered. It means liberation from the power of sin and death into Christ and life. Because the righteousness of God, dikaiosune, is the saving act of God in Christ, then dikaiao isn't a legal justification, but a gracious, unconditional deliverance. Being liberated then, accordingly, that goes back to 425. The one who was obedient to death in Romans 425, look at this because it follows. It's a segue. It follows. There's connectedness here. He was delivered over, handed over. Paul takes that word and steals it right out of the turn or burn message of the teacher in Romans 118 to 32, paradidomy in 124, 26, and 27, where the moralizing teacher says God gave them over to do that. Paul says, no, God gave over his son, paradidomi, gave over Messiah. He was handed over for our sins. 
and resurrected for our deliverance. Therefore, accordingly, being delivered by what? Our faith? No, his faithfulness. If you follow it, it's got to be delivered, graciously saved, if you want to say it that way, like Ephesians 2.8. By grace, you have been saved through faithfulness. And that faithfulness is not of yourself, lest any person would boast. Ain't no boasting when it comes to salvation. Where is it then? We're about to identify it. We found Waldo. Where's Waldo? He's right here. That's a maddening thing to do, that Waldo game. Because there's a million figures, and there's like half a million that look just like Waldo. And there's a reverse of Waldo, too. There's a guy that wears black and gold. He's a Steeler fan version of Waldo. But uh, you have to find him. His name is the opposite of Waldo. This is going somewhere, I know. It's, 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 it's going to hell in a handbasket. Waldo is W-A-L-D-O, but the other guy is O-D-L-O-W. He's Odlaw, Odlaw. Did you know that? What's wrong with you? What do you do, on, what do, you do now? Look at, at electronic devices? No. We're finding Waldo. And the reason I say this is because Waldo is Paul, but Odlaw is this odd law teacher. And they're opposites, you say, never mind. Romans 5.1, being liberated accordingly. That accordingly goes back to liberated accordingly by faithfulness. The faithfulness of Messiah who was handed over to death for our sins. Handed over, handed over. God did not spare his son, but handed him over. No, the preacher says God will not spare the pagans. So he hands them over because they failed Nat Theo 101, natural theology. Through their contemplation of the universe, they did not give God credit nor become thankful as if they could. And so God gave them over. No, Paul says God gave over his son for our sins and raised him for our deliverance. Therefore, Romans 5.1, if you don't chop up the chapters, as this shouldn't happen here, being liberated, saved, delivered, rescued accordingly, that is, from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, for our deliverance, by faithfulness. That's the fidelity of the righteous one. We have peace with God. And that is in the sense of a messianic salvation, as the Gingrich translation says, peace means messianic salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, that is, through his fidelity. That's the point of Romans 5.1. This is when Paul's unchained gospel starts to hit the ground and run. Or we could say better, take off and fly. So then, being liberated accordingly by faithfulness, that's Messiah's, we have peace. That also means reconciliation. We have reconciliation with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 5.2, through whom we also have Access by tapiste, the faithfulness, the faithfulness of Messiah into the grace wherein we permanently stand. And here's where boasting is. I found Waldo and we boast in the hope of sharing the glory of God. Where's our boast? It's in the Lord. Let not the wise man glory in his intellect. Let not the mighty man glory in his might or strength. Let not the wealthy man boast in his wealth and his holdings. Let him that boasts boast in me, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord, that I exercise mercy and righteousness in the earth. Where's boasting? It's in the Lord. We now can boast in the fact that we, who could never earn or deserve this thing, by the faithfulness of Messiah, will share the glory of God. We will be glorified. You know why? Because when there was no condition to be met, God foreknew you, called you, justified you, and glorified you in Romans 8.30. Where's the condition there? You weren't even born yet. So where is boasting by man with respect to salvation? Nowhere. It's shut out. But where is boasting properly located? 
It's now here. We boast in the confident expectation of sharing the glory of God. Here is what I call e-assurance, not e-insurance, eschatological assurance, because our hope is in God. Psalm 62, 5. My hope is in God, so my boast is in God. Through Jesus Christ's fidelity. We don't boast in our attainment of salvation or in our appropriation of it or even in our faith alone, but in Messiah's faithfulness. That's why Paul said, may it never be, perish the thought, God forbid, heaven forbid, whatever idiomatic expression you want to put to meganoito, that I should ever boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the same as the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to death. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ also takes in the moment of his incarnation, which led by a life of faithful obedience to that death. It also takes in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Christ in him crucified also takes in the further downward trajectory of death and burial, and then the upward trajectory of resurrection, ascension, and a throne enthronement. Paul says, I will never boast in anything except for the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, which is another way of saying the faithfulness unto death of Jesus my Lord, which resulted in resurrection. There's our boast. It's in the Lord. The boast in Yahweh of the Old Testament is now the boast in our risen Lord Jesus, which means Jesus is Yahweh. And therefore the church is Jew and Gentile together, pagans and Jews together, the Israel of God. So there's still fruitfulness in that disclosure. I know this is hard to fathom, and we're going to go over this over and over again so that you get it. But we do not boast in our attainment of salvation but in Messiah's attainment of salvation for us, which gives us true eschatological assurance. We believe that if we died with him, we will also live with him. We believe that we will also live with him. In fact, we believe that God, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, will raise us up and present us together with you. This is boasting in the Lord. It's called e-assurance, eschatological assurance. And faith, by definition, is not the means of appropriating salvation. If it were, when God allowed the definition of faith one time in the scriptures, Hebrews 11.1, faith is, and then what it is, he would have said the means of appropriation of salvation, if it were that important. But he didn't say that. He said faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What do we hope for? Sharing the glory of God. That doesn't mean we share God's glory for doing something. It means we share the glorious, incorruptible, immortal body of the risen Lord. That's what we're going to, that's what we look forward to. When do you stop looking forward to that? When things get tough in this life? No, because where is boasting? Our boasting is also here in 5.3. Not only that, don't tell me, Paul, you're going to go beyond We did that in 2016. We're not still doing that now, are we? Absolutely. We're on the move here. And I'm aware that when you're on the move as a church, you're going to have people peel off from attending from time to time because they want to sit still somewhere and stop right here. I'm going to stop right here. Okay, let's get it now. Let's tabulate our doctrines in a little manual. Let's get our manual of doctrinal dogma, and let's stay right here. No, we're not going to stay right here. We're on the move. We're going to be on the move. I'm going to be as long as I'm teaching. And so it's a moving viewpoint. We're going to see things from angles that we didn't see from before. We're going to go from horizon to horizon, from standpoint to standpoint. And our changes aren't going to be changing with every wind of doctrine. It's going to be changing with every standpoint that God gives us to see a horizon. We now see a a universal horizon. Not only that, Paul says in verse 3, we also boast in our tribulations, difficult circumstances, where everything seems to be against us. Have you ever been in a moment in your life where you literally think that every single thing 
is against you, even it seems God is providentially arranging circumstances in a conspiracy against you. Well, when it seems to be that way, you walk by faith, not by sight. You boast in the hope of the glory of God, even in that difficult circumstance. There's a difficult circumstance called dying. And we're all going to get there. Some of us are going to die instantly. That's what we pray for. Please take me when I'm asleep. Or take me through a gunshot that I can't even hear because the sound doesn't even get to me before the bullet does and I'm down. I'm a rag doll. Done. Finished. Or, but we're not going to all get our wish. We might have to go out through a long death-shadowed valley. Maybe. If that's God's will. Will we be able to appropriate dying grace and boast in that difficult circumstance? We've seen it. We've all seen it. I've seen it from people in Tetelestai that are the advanced phalanx going into heaven. They boasted in their difficulties. They boasted in their dying phase. They boasted in their hope of the glory of God. What's even more difficult is when somebody you love is in that phase. More difficult for you, perhaps. But will you boast even in your sorrow? Will you boast even in your grief? Will you boast even in your pain that that loved one will share the glory of God very soon? or is already sharing the glory of God at Christ's right hand and is in the fullness of joy? And will you boast in the reunion with that person that you will have? Not only that, we also boast in our difficult circumstances, knowing assuredly that tribulation brings about patient endurance. You know what that patient endurance is? Participation in the unrelenting fidelity of Messiah Jesus, a perseverance that is in Jesus, is now in you. You never had it in you to do this before. You never had it in you to be this steadfast, this semper fi, always faithful. You never had it in you before. It's because it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Not of might, not of power. By my spirit, says Yahweh. So we know that this tribulation brings about patient endurance, which is participation in Jesus' own patience. And patient endurance produces approved character, dokime. And character produces hope. Moreover, this hope is not ashamed. He's going back to Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because therein, the saving act of God in Christ, which takes us all the way into eternity, is being revealed. I'm not ashamed. Isaiah 28.16. He who believes in him, he who has participates in his faithfulness. Whose? The stone that I have laid in Zion, a tested stone, a stone that has passed through suffering and passion, the passion of Christ that has raised. Everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him or shares in his fidelity will not be ashamed. That's the Lord Jesus Christ in Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, Because the love of God has already been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was gifted to us. All of our boasting then is in the Lord, in Jesus Christ, as is all our assurance, just as all our justification, which is really our unconditionally given deliverance. Where's the condition? Where's the condition to be met by man when we see Paul's gospel unchained from its dialectic opposite. Where is the condition? If while we were yet sinners, and this is where this is going in 5.8, and I got to hammer it home right now instead of going there gradually. If while we were yet sinners, hamartoloi means in total hostility to God's, the very love that he loved us with. If while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Where's the condition? There is no condition that God puts to man by which he can appropriate salvation, including faith alone, sola fides, which is a slogan of the Reformation invented by Melanchthon and carried on by Luther, who shouldn't be blamed for the Reformation interpretation, Romans, incidentally, because he wasn't consistently all about that. He, was, he had some universalistic things to say as he grew as did Calvin from time to time, although Calvin never stopped that train of 
double predestination, which is a damnable heresy, and a limited atoning thing, which is a damnable heresy. The moment you put atonement together with limited, you've already put me off forever. I'm done with you. As far as talking, and as far as you think you can convince me of a limited atonement, we're done with that conversation. Not even going to get into it. So where's the condition? It's not now here. It's nowhere now. It was nowhere then when Christ died for us. It's nowhere now. There is no condition. The gospel is a unilateral, unconditional covenant of God toward humankind, which was fulfilled through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all of us. You say, wait a minute, this is going, this is concluding something that I thought in my mind, but didn't even dare dream about. Yeah, it is. But I'm getting us there by walking on a bridge of real stuff called exegetical truth, the scriptures. I'm not just going to say this. (laughs) The whole world is now in Christ without getting us up there by showing that that's what the scripture is teaching and that's what Paul is preaching and that's what's being revealed. But the God of this age doesn't want that revealed. He wants that veiled. He, he wants the gospel of the glory of Messiah, which is universalized, the glory of Messiah. He wants that gospel to be veiled. And so the ripping of the veil away means that the God of this age becomes aroused. But that doesn't bother us because we have the shield of faith. We have the sword of the spirit. We have the helmet of salvation. We have the feet shod with the gospel of peace. And we have, if God is for us, who can be against us? We have, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is Christ who died. It's God who justifies. And he happens to justify ungodly people. If while we were ungodly, Romans 5, 6 is going to go on to say, While we were still ungodly, he died for the ungodly. He didn't die for righteous people. He died for the ungodly. Where's the condition? He died for the ungodly. As long as the ungodly tries to obey the law throughout their lives, despairs, gets into eschatological anxiety, fears hell, and then finally says, oh, thank God I can just believe in Jesus and then have eternal life. That is not the gospel. It's a salvific act. And as I mentioned last night, I'm going to say this again, and I'm going to lead up to it in another message. Karl Barth may have been controversial in his 31-volume Church Dogmatics, which I have not read the whole thing. I don't think, I've got to pick and choose what I read now, and I don't think I have enough time in my life to read that. But Volume 2, Doctrine of God, Part 2, it's famously known in universities and divinity schools as 2-2. Barth said this about election and about human choice, man's choice. I quoted it last night. I'm going to quote it until it becomes clear to you. Affirmation 35, Karl Barth, that's B-A-R-T-H, pronounced Barth, a Swiss theologian, most famous theologian perhaps of the 20th century. Church But Dogmatics, Volume 2, The Doctrine of God, Part 2, Hendrickson Publishers, Peabody Mass, 2010, page 94, says this. The man who is isolated over against God is as such rejected by God. But to be this man can only be by the godless man's own choice. The witness of the community of God to every individual man, and we'll say person, he didn't have that squared away about you're supposed to include every gender now. The community of God, the witness of the community of God to every individual person consists in this, that this choice of the godless person is void. In other words, the void, the godless person says, I choose isolation from God. And that might even be isolation from God in the form of an obedience to the law by which I earn or deserve God's favor. That's the worst kind of isolation from God, because it's you independent from God, striving to be like God without Christ. It's a soteriology without Christ. And the only soteriology that we believe in, that I believe in, is a Christological salvation. It is a Christology. It's all about Jesus Christ. So the godless man decides he is going to be independent from God. He makes a godless choice. But guess what God did? He rendered the choice void. And this is how he did it. The witness of the community of God, that's us. To every individual person consists in this, that this choice of the godless person is void. 
that he belongs eternally to Jesus Christ and is therefore not rejected, but elected by God in Jesus Christ, that the rejection which he deserves on account of his perverse choice is borne by Jesus Christ, and that he is appointed to eternal life with God on the basis of the righteous divine decision. The promise of his election determines that as a member of the community, he himself shall be a bearer of the witness to the whole world. And the revelation of his rejection can only determine him to believe in Jesus Christ as the one by whom it has been born and canceled. So you want to talk about human choice? The choice we make to be godless is rendered void by God. The consequences of our choice to be godless were born by Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the elect one, the consummate elect one. In Luke 22, maybe 35, 23, 35, maybe. Check me on that one. And 1 Peter 1.20, verily was he elect. He's the elect one. If he was elect, then the whole human race was elect in him. It is not an election of some. And then let's be fancy and say we're infralapsarians. God elects some to salvation. He just leaves the others to damnation. Well, that makes them a lot better than predetermine them to go to hell. He just lets them go to hell. I see him way past my time. Sorry. I almost feel like a politician giving his last press conference. I'm sorry. I went way past the time. Okay. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray now that you'll bless and use for your glory and not for our advancement, but for your own glory.